0: Well, good evening. Would you join me in a word of prayer? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come before you and, Lord, we just ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, our ears, open our eyes, Lord, just open our entire being to hear your word for us tonight. God, we pray that tonight you would put your kingdom to come at the forefront of our minds. God, that you would show us how to invest wisely into your kingdom, how to make a difference, how to be faithful stewards of what you've given to us. Lord, we ultimately ask that your will would be done and that your kingdom would come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Allow me to introduce myself My name is Caleb Parrish, and uh, I'm Dr. Brooks' intern here at Tallawood. I've been here serving on staff with Dr. Brooks since about February. Um, I'm a student at HBU, and uh, I study finance and Christianity. I'm a double major with the hopes of uh, entering vocational ministry, Lord willing. My wife, Sarah, is up here in the front. We've been married now for almost two months, and... uh, you know, I was, I was going to teach tonight on marriage, uh, but Dr. Brooks didn't think that was such a good idea. He, apparently, there's more I have to learn. I, I don't know what that could be. <clears throat> so instead, tonight we'll be continuing in our Disciplines of a Disciple series. Uh, and we're going to be talking about something that's very close to, I, I think, the heart of God here. And, and when I say that, I think especially for this group present tonight, I think for this group present tonight, the Lord has something very specific. He wants to share it, and, and he's really been burdening, with, burdening me with it, and, and I'm just, I'm so excited to, for the opportunity to share it with you tonight. So we're going to be looking at, first of all, section, a small section of the Psalm 71. So if you'll turn with your Bibles to Psalm 71, we'll be reading from verse 14 through 18. Psalm 71, verse 14 through 18, it reads, But as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, O sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteousness, yours alone. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, And to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. This is the word of the Lord. Many Bible commentators have called this a psalm for old age. If that sounds like a title you can relate to, I'll share the advice of the author, John Wagner, who said, don't let old age get you down. It's too difficult to get back up. <laughs> this psalm is supposed to be written by uh, the elderly David, who in his old age is calling out for deliverance from his enemies. And he, he kind of comes to this resolution here at the end. He comes to this resolution that God has been his hope since youth. God has been his hope Since youth. Perhaps you're like me and you were raised in a Christian household. And you, like David, can say, God, you've been my hope since youth. Charles Spurgeon wrote, They are highly favored who can, like David, Samuel, Josiah, Timothy, and others, say, Thou art my trust from my youth. It's a blessed testimony to trust Christ over a lifetime. I think of the early church father, Polycarp, supposed to be a disciple of uh, the Apostle John. He stood on trial before the city officials who were pressuring him to to worship Caesar, to declare that Caesar is Lord. And the officials had great respect for this man of God. And they said, "What, what harm is it just to say, just to say that Caesar is Lord and spare yourself being thrown before the lions in the arena? And this is what Polycarp responded to their question. He said, for 86 years, I've been Christ's slave and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? A lifelong commitment to the Lord, that's faithfulness. That's faithfulness to the Lord, and that's that's commendable. But even more so, even more commendable is the Lord's faithfulness to his people. It's the Lord's faithfulness to us over a lifetime. And that's why David here, he's longing to increase God's praise verses 15 and 16. Again, he says, my mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, O sovereign Lord. I'll proclaim your righteousness and yours alone. He says, I want to share your righteousness. I don't want people to know about my righteousness. It's nothing to talk about compared to your righteousness. I want them to hear about you. I want them to hear about the Lord. He's pleading with God for, for more time. Verse 18, he says, even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. It's this longing, it's this burden, it's don't let me go, Lord, don't let me depart, don't let me leave this earth until I can just share with one more generation. Just give me one more generation to share your story. It's this desire, really, to be like God. It's this desire to be like the God who taught him from youth, this God who taught David from youth now to his old age. He says, Lord, let me be like you. Let me teach the youth about the one who can guide them, keep them, and teach them all throughout their life, just as you have me. What a beautiful prayer. Have you prayed that prayer recently? Have you thought about the next generation lately? Have you prayed, Lord, don't take me home until I can share my story, really your story, with just one more generation? Tonight we're talking about the disciplines of a disciple, continuing our series. And We're going to be focusing on the discipline of mentorship. And, and generally, mentorship refers to the teaching of a specific skill or, or the guiding along a career path uh, but, but Christian mentorship is, is something altogether different. It's something greater. It's something more than a general mentorship. If Christianity is the truth not about some particular field or some particular religion on this planet, if Christianity is the truth about everything, the truth about who we are, about who God is, about our purpose here, if it's the truth about everything, it's, it's difficult to teach someone everything impossible in a lot of ways, if maybe by sharing life together is the only way to even approach being able to teach someone the truth about Christianity, through sharing life together. And sharing life with someone doesn't often happen unintentionally. I asked some of the other interns uh, these last couple of weeks about some mentors in their life, Uh, and I heard back about some professors. I heard back about some older People in their life, someone who was like a second mom, someone who was like a parent, someone who just called in maybe maybe even once a year, called in maybe even once a year, or even a, someone who met weekly. And you see, there's, there's not necessarily a, a, a sticky or a tight definition for this term when we talk about Christian mentorship. And so for t- tonight, for our purposes, we're going to define a Christian mentor as the intentional involvement in the life of a younger person. The intentional involvement in the life of a younger person. Christian or not. Christian or not. We're also going to look at a biblical example of a mentorship. Uh, It's a more obscure passage in Israel's history. Um, And sometimes I think the most useful biblical characters for us are those that on one hand show us the right thing to do, but on the other hand, show us what not to do. And so tonight we're going to look at a relationship among two individuals, and it, it requires a little bit of setup, and, and it's a wide scope of Scripture, and I'll do my best to share this in a timely manner. Uh, but you remember we talked this morning about Solomon, and Solomon in his great wisdom, well, he had a son who uh, gave in to quite a bit of folly. Rehoboam was ultimately responsible for the splitting of the kingdom of Israel, the northern of the northern kingdom, Israel in the north and the southern Judah below it. And skipping a lot of the history of the kings there, we eventually reach the rule of Ahab in Israel and his wife Jezebel. Well, the two of them had a daughter who is a less known character in the scripture named Athaliah. Athaliah's son was ruling in Judah. Athaliah's son was ruling in Judah named Ahaziah. And upon Ahaziah's death, the next heir in line was to rule in Judah. But Athaliah was crafty and desired power for herself. And so she sought to put to death her own grandchildren so that she could retain power. Well, fortunately, uh, Ahaziah's sister stole one of the babies away to keep him safe. And her, along with her husband, Jehoiada, Jehoiada, the priest, they... They raised this child in the temple in secret, keeping him safe from Athaliah. This child's name was Joash. They raised him for six years in the temple, keeping him secret from Athaliah, until on the seventh year of his life, Jehoiada gathered men together to guard the temple as he anointed Joash king over Judah, much to Athaliah's surprise and demise. She came too late at the commotion to see her grandchild taking the throne back. She yelled out, treason, treason, and uh, Jehoiada had her put to death, but but he made sure, he said, don't put her to death here in the temple of the Lord. Remember that. Remember that Jehoiada did not want Athaliah put to death in the temple of the Lord. And so now Athaliah has been put to death, the line of David has been restored on the throne of Judah. You see, Jehoiada made this uh, marvelous and miraculous intervention in Joash's life to protect the Davidic line. <clears throat> so Joash began his reign as a seven-year-old boy. We're going to read in 2 Kings 12, just verses 1 and 2. If, you'll, if you'd like to turn there, you can. If not, I'll read it out loud. 2 Kings 12, 1 and 2. It's, it's the beginning of Joash's reign. It says, in the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother's name was Zibia. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. All the years Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. It's an interesting insert there. We go on to read the details of Joash's reign that, that he led the temple, he led the restoration of God's temple, which under the rule of Athaliah and her children had fallen into disrepair as, as they worshiped idols and how even some of her sons took the holy objects out of the temple and used them for worship on idols. We see Joash lead the charge in restoring the temple. He even gets on to some of the priests when it's not moving along as quickly as he thinks it should. So under Jehoiada's instruction, Joash leads the people out of idolatry back into the worship of Yahweh. This looks like a great picture of a successful mentorship. Jehoiada instructing Joash leads the people back into relationship with God. We see more details of this parallel account in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. We'll read in verse 15. Now, Jehoiada was old and full of years, and he died at the age of 130. He was buried with the kings in the city of David because of the good he had done in Israel for God and his temple. Jehoiada dies at age 130, that's 18 years older than the oldest living World War II veteran, Richard Overton, who turned 112 this year, considered to be the oldest man in the U.S. right now. 130 years old, Jehoiada is buried among the kings of Jerusalem, a great honor. We see that the tragic loss of this man who was, Jeho- excuse me, who was Joash's mentor, who saved his nephew, who raised the king of Judah, used by God to protect the Davidic line and the covenant, restored the people back to God, this mentor for Joash instructed him on what was right we see his death as a tragedy. And I want to say on on this mentor relationship we see between these two, there's an overwhelming need for Christian mentorship relationships today. Young people who, like Joe Ash, have a heritage of idolatry and destruction. Because ultimately, isn't that all of our heritage? Isn't that all of our heritages? We need men and women who intentionally involve themselves in the lives of younger people. You would hope that the tragedy of this story is the loss of Jehoiada, but it's, it's not. The story continues on. And immediately after the death of Jeho- Jehoiada, the uh, officials of Judah come to the king, and they, it says that they pay him homage. They pay him homage, and it says the next verse that they abandon The temple of the Lord, that they abandon the worship of the Lord, that they turn their backs on God. After the death of Jehoiada, these officials come in and everything changes in an instant. They abandon the house of the Lord, idolatry, and yet God in his grace sends prophets to warn the king, to warn these officials to return to him. He even puts his spirit upon the son of Jehoiada, That would be Joash's cousin. Joash's cousin, Zechariah, comes before them and urges them to return the Lord. And and a horrible, horrible thing happens. By the order of Joash, Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, is stoned in the very temples, in the very court of the temple. The very court of the temple. The place where Jehoiada wouldn't even allow the wicked woman, Athaliah, to be put to death. Here, the righteous Zechariah is put to death. The tragedy doesn't end there. A small band of Syrian soldiers come and they invade Judah. And without the Lord's help, Judah is overwhelmed. And Joash is left severely injured after a battle. And where are his officials? (laughs) His officials are the ones who plot to murder him, conspiring to put him to death. And they do. So what happened? How did we get there in this story? How did we go from this boy king who's doing right in the eyes of the Lord to now murdering his own mentor's son? It's, it's such a dramatic change. But isn't this what's happening today? Statistics by Lifeway in 2010, eight years ago, show that 70% of youth leave the church by the time they are 22 years old. of youth leave the church by the time they're 22 years old, and that was eight years ago. I don't know the statistics for today. So how can those with great spiritual privilege, those with great spiritual heritage, how can they walk away from the faith as soon as they leave home? Are we to blame Jehoiada for the sins of Joash? Certainly not, but I can't help but wonder If Jehoiada could have known all of the destruction that would follow after his death, I wonder if he would go back and do anything differently. I wonder if more than instructing Joash, I wonder if more than telling him the right thing to do, if he would have just sought to instill and and make sure that Joash's heart was inclined towards the Lord. He would have tried to do more than tell him and enforce that Joash do the right thing, that he restore the temple, that he end idol worship and follow the law of God, but he would have thought, he would have sought to instill more in him. Now, hear me, the text isn't clear on the relationship, the specifics of the relationship and the mentorship between Jehoiada and Joash. But with these dramatic plot details, I can't help but wonder, where was Joash's heart? Where was Joash's heart during the days of Jehoiada? You see, there's two kinds of people. There's those that, there's two kinds of people that are both doing the right thing. There's those that do the right thing out of a a clear love for God. And there's those that do the right thing out of different motives. There's those that by faith and fullness of heart do the right thing. And then there's those with hearts of stones who still do the right thing. We call those Pharisees when we look at the New Testament. We see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that the Lord focuses on the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. So how do we look at this tragedy of Joash's life, of Jehoiada's life, and learn from it? What do we see about mentorship in this story We see that Joash, though he was instructed to do the right thing, we don't see a love of God in his heart. And I think we see the first principle about Christian mentorship, and that's that a Christian mentor is not just someone who helps someone else do the right thing, but it's one inclined heart seeking to incline another. Christian mentorship is one inclined heart seeking to incline another. I wonder if maybe sometimes we focus too much on the behavior, we miss the heart. Sometimes we focus too much on what's on the, going on on the outside, that we miss the root issue, we miss the motivation, we miss the relationship. I wonder if Joash ever looked towards his mentor and saw his heart. I wonder if Jehoiada ever really shared his heart for the Lord with Joash, taught him to obey God, yes but taught him to love God. They go together. They absolutely go together, love and obedience, but there is an order. There's certainly an order, love, then obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, but you see this order of love and then following out of that love. Do the people in our lives, in our circles of influence, in our families, in our church, do they know this order? And it's hard to distinguish it even in our own hearts sometimes. Sometimes even in our own hearts, it's hard to catch our motives. It's hard to catch why we're obeying in this instance. Is it out of love? Is it out of duty? Is it out of obligation? Is it out of this genuine overflow of God, overflow of the love of God? Sometimes it's hard even to look into our own hearts, so I wonder how hard it is for those around us to judge our motives accurately. Do your children, do your grandchildren, your neighbors, your coworkers, do they know why you go to church every Sunday, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night? Do they know that it's more than just your religion, that it's your relationship of love? David, in the psalm, he He longed to declare of God's power, his might, his righteousness. He longed to increase his praise, not to instruct others in God's rule, though that may follow. He speaks of longing to teach them about God's power, his might, his righteousness, his character, that they may love him as David loves him. First to speak of his goodness, his righteousness, and his salvation— and like I said, it's easy to get caught up in the behavior. It's, it's so much more visible than the motives of people, than the heart of people. It's so much easier to focus on the behavior. Too often it's going to church because mom made us. It's not saying the curse words around, though you say them around friends, it's not saying them at church. It's not telling people the truth about how they spent the weekend. For so many young people, it's become a culture. For so many young people, it's become people-pleasing. It's become fitting in. It's become cultural Christianity. And it's not about a love relationship with God. Listen to how David G. McAfee, author of Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings, this is an atheist, Listen to how he describes this phenomenon. He says, "...people who have extremely limited knowledge of the Bible or its implications may still choose to classify themselves as Christians on the basis that their parents do so. They may never even give it a second thought. This phenomenon of our nation's children inheriting a religion is often overlooked because the perpetrator guilty of indoctrination is not a dictator or cult leader, but instead is most often their own parents or close family members." This critic of cultural Christianity says often they don't even give it a second thought. It is a culture. It is just something they were raised to do, not someone they were raised to love. So the tragedy in this biblical account that we've looked at, what was the catalyst of that? And I believe that was the voice of the wicked officials coming in. And they're they're the ones that start Joash down this dark, dark path that ends in so much destruction And who knows what was said in that paying homage? Who knows what they said? Who knows what honeyed words they brought before the king? But what about the young people in your families, in our churches, in our neighborhoods? The wicked officials will come to them as well. And what will they say? What will they say? Who knows once that culture, once those authority figures are gone... what will will happen? And it's what happened to Joash, his mentor, his authority figure was gone. A young person raised in the church who knows all the right things to do is doomed against these wicked advisors if they cannot rest in the love of God. It's that foundation we talked about this morning. It's the rock, it's the love of God. If their heart wasn't in it, if it was just action, just behavior reinforcement. There'll be a fool who knows the right thing to do and chooses to do the wrong thing. Many of our young people have been taught to act rightly, to live according to the right behavior that God would have of them, to be respectful, to say yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir, to leave things better than they found them, to say no to drugs, to wait until marriage. They've been taught to do what makes mom happy? What makes dad proud? What makes grandpa and grandma have hope in them? What makes them fit into this culture? But without love of God to ground them in these behaviors, it just becomes arbitrary rules. It becomes legalism. If there's one thing that young people dislike, it's action without the heart. Not works of faith, but it's works of fear, fear of people, fear of of rejection, fear of not fitting in. And when these wicked advisors come, and they will, they're out there, our world will tell them to stop faking it, stop faking that religion, and they'll lead them down a dark path of destruction. There are so many lies out there about God, about their family, about the choices they've been raised to make. How will they stand up if their heart is not inclined towards the Lord and what pleases him? How can they stand in the storm without the foundation? The foundation is not right behavior, it's right relationship with God. There's this huge vacuum that's created in in Joash's life when his mentor passes away. So we wonder, did Joash just pick the wrong people to fill it? Was there someone else in his circle that he should have picked instead of these wicked advisors? And can we just stay overly connected with our young people so that when they leave home or so when they're doing things that we don't know, can we just call them more? Can we just check up on them every night? Can we be there for every situation? Sadly, no. But who is there for every situation? Who is the ultimate advisor, the ultimate mentor? The Lord. The Lord is always there. Who was it that David declared was his teacher? He says, the Lord. But Joash let himself be filled with the lies of these wicked advisors and not the relationship and the love and the advice and the counsel of God. He was swayed and it led him down a horrible, horrible path. And then where were those officials when he was wounded and dying? They were the ones that sought to finish him off. So what if Jehoiada could have been there when the officials came? Would he, how would this story look? If, if somehow Jehoiada had still been there, maybe it would be different. But he wasn't there, and he couldn't have been. And you can't always be there when the wicked officials come. The voices of our world, when they whisper in the ears of our loved ones. And that's why a Christian mentor must do more than assist in wise decision-making, but they must lead to the source of wisdom. You know the old saying, give a man a fish, you can feed him for a day, but teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. The same is true. Give someone good counsel, they might make a good decision, but give someone the good counselor, they'll make wise decisions over a lifetime. Does anyone ever ask for your advice? Does anyone ever come to you for your input? Do you give them wise counsel and send them on their way or or do you seek to consult the Lord with them? Do you teach them how to pray? Do you teach them how to ask the Lord what he would have of them? A difference of some family members, I, I call and ask for advice and often I hear advice back and that's great and I'm so thankful for that but my Aunt Helen, my great Aunt Helen, she always always offers prayer. Before she asks, well, what do I want? Before she asks, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? What's your plan? She always prays. She always seeks prayer first. First and foremost. She's leading me to the source of wisdom. So what will your young people do? What will they do when you're not in that circle of influence anymore? When the wise counsel isn't there what will they do? Will teach them to consult the Lord, and they'll consult the Lord. Help them to keep from viewing you as their spiritual connection, as their personal connection with God. Enable them to have a personal connection. There's so many college students that I'm around that, that view their parents or their grandparents as their personal connection with God and, and don't have a personal relationship with this God that they claim to know. <clears throat> Drew Dyke, author of a, a book called Generation X Christian, offers some practical advice when reaching out to the young. He says, Your job isn't to straighten out all their opinions. Your job is to light the path back to Christ. Lead them to the source and encourage them in that way. Walk beside them. A Christian mentor involves themselves in the lives of others, often at great personal cost and sacrifice. A Christian mentor involves themselves in the lives of someone else, often at great personal cost and sacrifice. There is great risk involved. There's rejection. There's unreciprocated relationships. There's people taking advantage of your kindness. There's your resources, your time. There's underappreciation. There's the risk of failure, the risk of getting involved in a broken home, in a complicated system. But Jehoiada, to get involved, he almost lost his life. He risked his very life to be involved in, jo- in Joash's life. In Christ, he did lose his life to be involved in your life. And look, I-, I know often young people don't desire the wisdom of the wiser. They often act foolish, and it's incredibly difficult to share with those who don't desire it. But don't let that turn you off completely from involving yourself with young people. Hear me say this. There, there are more open to your wisdom than you would think and less than you'd hope. These are my friends. These are my fellow students. These are the kids that come to Camp Tallawood. These are the kids going to our Centric Kids camp. These are the ones right here. These are my friends. They're right here. And I'm, I'm trying to give you an insider's look At what we need. I'm saying it on behalf of those that don't know how to say it, don't even know how to seek it. We need you. The young people in your life, they need you. They need you to show them their bigger need, which is the Lord. So hear my heart in this. I, I don't mean to say that we are responsible for the actions and the choices of other people. And if this message was to the youth group or to a kids group, it, it would be a much, a very different message. But what they should do is different from what we can do. What they should do is different from what we can do. So what can we do to help them to do, do what they should do? Howard Hendricks at Dallas Theological Seminary said, that every man should seek to have three individuals in his life, a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. And essentially, he talks about a Paul being an older man who's willing to mentor you, a Barnabas, a friend to walk alongside of you and encourage you, and then a Timothy, someone for you to be a Paul to, for you to be an older man to mentor. Psalm 71, 18, David's longing to declare to the next generation, what if you prayed that prayer? What if you sought to involve yourself in the lives of young people around you? Where would you start? And hear me, I know, especially at Tallawood, what a blessed church. There are so many of you doing this. There are so many of you who have done this, but I'm asking you to do it again to continue doing it, to not grow weary in doing good, but to press on for at the right time you'll reap the harvest. So don't give up, but continue to intentionally involve yourself in the lives of young people, to be a mentor with your family, your children, your grandchildren. Do you ever just share your heart with them? Do you ever share your testimony with them? More than sharing what so that they don't grow up just knowing what you don't like and what you do like for them to do, but they grow up knowing your relationship with God. They grow up knowing how he saved you, how he redeemed you. Do you ever worship with your children, with your grandchildren? Do you ever call them and just pray with them? Do you ever share your heart and, and ask about their heart, listen and hear their heart? It's important. Carl Henry said that one child lost to the faith usually becomes a family lost to the faith. And not many generations later, a whole community of unbelief is set in motion because some of the earlier neglect of parental duties. Discipleship does happen in the home, but it doesn't stop there. What about outside of your family? To the broken homes, to the orphans, to the fatherless? Start simply studying the Bible with someone in your life. Start there. Start meeting with someone and just learning beside them. The best mentors are fellow learners. The best mentors are fellow learners. Someone that will come alongside them in their walk with God and learn from the source of wisdom. Psalm seventy-one, eighteen. Again, David longs to declare the might of the Lord to the next generation to come. And what if Talwood was a church that prayed that prayer constantly? What if this group sought to involve itself in the lives of young people in the church? So where do you start? Maybe by sitting next to someone, by shaking a hand, by learning a name, by remembering that name. It makes a difference. This church has a great need for you. Our young married couples, we need the wisdom. We need the wisdom. Our college students, every day they hear voices urging them to do what is not pleasing to God. Our high school and junior high students, I, I spoke with Ryan just this week, and he's looking, he's in need of people to lead his students to a closer walk with the Lord. Talk with Ryan, start there. Our Tallwood Treasures, talk with Allison. If you don't know what to say, how to begin a mentor relationship, if you don't know how to talk to, start with the Treasures. There's no better audience for you who simply need your presence and your love. Talk with Lisa on how you can get more involved with our children. You know, research shows that for youth to to statistically continue in their Christianity after leaving the home, it says that they need three key relationships, three key relationships, and that is with parents. They need parents that practice faith in the home daily. Then they need a significant adult friend, a mentor figure. And lastly, they they need a close spiritual encounter with God and a deep relationship with Him. They need all three. And in so many of our young people, one of those, if not all of those, is missing. I was serving this last summer in Vancouver, Canada, and uh, spoke with my wife's brother-in-law, who's a church planner there, And I'll I'll never forget what he said about children's ministry. We were running a children's camp, and he said, you know, I used to think it was a very special person that was called to children's ministry. And he kind of thought for a second, and he said, well, actually, I guess I was right, and that special person is a Christian. Every Christian should be involved in children's ministry. Every Christian in some way should be plugged in to the children of this church and if you don't know where to start among all of these needs, and just begin with praying. Tonight, we can pray for our children. Lisa has cards right outside the chapel. Just pick one up. It's, it's the names of all the children and the sponsors that will be going to Century Kids Camp. Pick one of those up on your way out and pray and pray and pray. No better place to start than through prayer to get in, involved in the lives of the young people in this church. And if for some reason you're discounting yourself tonight from declaring to the next generation, let me read to you the words of Billy Graham. He says, Scripture is filled with examples of men and women whom God used late in life, often with great impact. Men and women who refuse to use old age as an excuse to ignore what God, to ignore what God wanted them to do. So be someone who intentionally involves themselves in the lives of someone younger Be someone, be one inclined heart seeking to incline another. Be a voice of wisdom pointing others to the source of wisdom. Involve yourself at great personal cost. This is the kingdom of God. This is our church. These are our families. So how can we make a difference? Start tonight by grabbing a card on your way out and let's pray together. Would you join me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to come gather together. Father, we just ask that you would unite us. God, that you would give us all purpose. You would give us all a vision on how to connect, how to invest in your kingdom. God, would we be people who bring others to you? Would we be people who at are the risk of even our own lives, our resources, our everything. Seek to expand your kingdom through relationships. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.